Welcome to Health Now, WebMD's podcast about health, wellness, and you. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We've got a great episode for you today. Let's get started. There's a lot you can do for better sleep, like sticking to a regular schedule, not eating heavy meals too close to bedtime, and keeping your bedroom cool and dark. And we all know how important sleep is for just about every aspect of your health, including your brain, your blood pressure and blood sugar, your mood, your immune system, and even your weight. But while we all want a good night's sleep, there's one lifestyle change that not a lot of people are ready to make. Are you ready for a sleep divorce? We're not talking about calling lawyers. A sleep divorce isn't necessarily a breakup. It just means we sleep in separate bedrooms. You're still with your partner, but you're not physically with them while you're sleeping. Maybe you like the bedroom cool and your mate likes it toasty. Or they're a night owl and you're up before dawn. Or they snore so loudly that you can't sleep. If neither of you is getting decent sleep, maybe that guest bedroom is starting to look really good. But how exactly does a sleep divorce work? What are the pros and cons? And might it even help your relationship when you're awake? We're talking about it today with journalist Karen Asp, who recently wrote about her sleep divorce for Real Simple Magazine. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Carrie, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to chat about this new way of sleeping. Yeah, we're excited to hear about it. Where did did you get the idea for this? When I was a little girl, we would visit my grandparents, my dad's parents in Massachusetts. We lived in New York, and so we'd always drive and have to spend the night, several nights. My grandparents actually never shared a bedroom together. And at the time, I kind of questioned it. My parents sleep together, so I've kind of wondered about it, but it just, it was always how it was. Mumu and Vadi slept in separate bedrooms. As I began researching and doing more sleep stories as a journalist later in life, I started hearing some experts and some individuals talk about how they don't share the same bedroom. And it drove something home that I had, again, been introduced to as a little girl. And that's kind of where it started. And I thought, you know, I'm having sleep issues. A lot of it revolves around my husband. And maybe this would be a good way for us to carry on. (laughs) It's funny how things later in life make you remember things back from your childhood and be like, oh, now I understand (laughs) why that was the way that was. Exactly, yes. (laughs) So obviously you had identified that you needed to get better sleep and you identified the problem as uh, sleeping with your husband or your sleep habits there. Were you making other changes for better sleep at the same time and, and why? So Carrie, yes, I was. So I was doing everything by the book. So following all of the sleep hygiene, which is, as you mentioned earlier, keeping your room cool, being very consistent with sleep schedules. Uh, I was also at the time, there were two things that I did in particular, along with all of the other sleep hygiene strategies that I was following, basically trying to get to bed. So get my body into bed just a little bit earlier, turn the lights out a little bit earlier. And then the other thing that I started doing was I used to always have iced tea in the afternoon. And I would say it was probably about one or two o'clock. And I decided that after 12 p.m., I would stop drinking all caffeine. I do love green tea in the morning, for instance. I do love a cup or two of coffee after 10 in the morning, but I always would be done with those things by 12. So basically cutting the caffeine was another strategy that I was trying. To your second question, the why, 
As you mentioned in the introduction, Carrie, sleep is so critical for health. And in my particular situation, numerous studies are showing that poor sleep can increase Alzheimer's risk. What I need to tell you about my grandparents who slept apart is that they both had Alzheimer's. One of their siblings also had Alzheimer's and three years ago, my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So I am very concerned about my own health, my brain health, and when I began learning about all of the implications of sleep on brain health, it was, I hate to say this, literally a no-brainer to say, I got to do more for my sleep. So how did you bring this up with your husband, and, and what was his first reaction when you brought up the idea of a sleep divorce? You know... I have to credit him. He's always been extremely supportive of everything that I've done and vice versa, but especially in regards to health. He knows how much this disease has practically, and I'll be very frank, terrified me throughout the years, especially when I've seen what it has done to my grandparents. So when I first got the idea in my head to say, you know what, I think that this would be great for us. I approached it just as I would with any other topic. We have a great relationship. We talk a lot. So I just sat down with him one night and said, you know, you know how much I'm doing for my health, especially brain health. And there's this missing piece of the puzzle and it's the sleep. You know how much I've tried to improve my sleep and I'm still having trouble. Would you be open to trying separate bedrooms? And he was actually, I can't say that he was excited about it, but he was very willing to give it a try, largely because he knew how much it meant for my health as well. How did you decide who sleeps where? It was kind of a natural decision, Carrie. And I'll preface this by saying this really works well if you have um, a house apartment, wherever you live, that does have two bedrooms. I know that that's not the case for everybody, but it was a natural fit for me to stay in our master bedroom, largely because I get up three hours before he does. I go to sleep well before he does. And all of my stuff, his stuff too, clothing, the main bathroom, etc. everything is is in that room. So it was less of a disruption for him to move out of the master bedroom and me to stay in the master bedroom so that by the time that I'm up, I'm moving, my husband Chris can come on in and he doesn't have to bring clothes into his room. He doesn't have to bring all of his bathroom supplies. Um, It's all there. So it was just kind of a natural fit for both of us to do that. Sure. Based on your sleep schedule, you just sort of picked the solution that would work best for both of you. Absolutely. So what is your evening routine like now? So I try, I'm going to preface that by saying again, that keyword try Yes. (laughs) to get myself off devices, mainly my laptop at night. I work lots and lots of hours and I try as best as I can to make sure that I'm done with the laptop any other device by at least 30 minutes before bed. Most experts will tell you it really should be maybe more like an hour. I have actually just tried using blue light glasses. I cannot tell you. So these are glasses that have a coating on them for basically taking away the blue light that gets into your eyes. All right. I've heard about those. Yeah, Gary. My husband's an optometrist, and he doesn't put 100% 
faith in that yet, but it's certainly not anything that is harmful or anything. So it's just, I stick a pair of glasses on my face at night and uh, use them at that. But basically that's it. I, you know, again, have a cup of tea, decaffeinated tea. I might have a cup of hot water. If I just need to hydrate a little bit more, I always read before bed. So I try to read, I prefer fiction. So I read a little bit of fiction before I go to bed. There are no devices in my room. So I don't use my iPhone is way several rooms away from me. Um, I use at night a white noise machine and I also have a fan on just to kind of keep things a little bit cooler. But generally at night it's stop the devices 30 minutes before bed, do something for me relaxing, which is again, reading. Um, I might move, let's say a, um, it's going to sound crazy, but I always work out at at night and shower afterward, but I might save that shower until you know, maybe right before bed so that it's right. a little more relaxing. So yeah, those are some of the things I do. Those are, that sounds like a really nice relaxing wind down routine. I think a lot of people, they, they kind of just assume they should, you know, turn off the lights and, and go right to sleep, but it, you really do have to give your body time to adjust and get sleepy. Well, and Carrie, I think it's not just the body, but it's also the mind. Definitely. We're not, that mind is not ready to shut down because of so much stimulation in the environment today. Uh, you know, whether you have the TV on, the devices, um, um, whatever it is, there's so much for our minds to process that it's not just for the body, but the mind too. Can't just flip a switch and turn it off very easily. No, <laughs> no. So how has this change affected your sleep and your husband's sleep as well? For me, I think it's made it a lot better, Carrie. And one of the things, so sleep quality has improved. Now, as I wrote in my piece for Real Simple, I am still my own worst enemy, as we all are. So that is not to say that I'm sleeping 100% through the night and that every single night is a great night of sleep. I still have my own, you know, the monkey mind is going, I'm too revved up from the work day or something like that. There's still that going on. But overall, my sleep quality my sleep quantity has improved. I'm not waking up in the middle of the night, for instance, with Chris's snoring. I'm a super light sleeper. So he, you know, when he would flip the light off or when I would flip the light off when we were together, you know, it would be at least an hour later before Chris would turn the light on his side of the bed off. I would hear the click. I would hear, I would see the light. I would instantly be up. So sleep quality. But I guess, Carrie, the other big thing that's happened too is during those times when we would sleep together and Chris would be sleeping soundly, but I would be so just not sleeping soundly because he's moving a lot, he's snoring, whatever it might be, I would get really, really upset with him. And I would wake up in the morning feeling incredibly angry and upset that he was getting sleep and I wasn't. <laughs> when he sleeps more than I do, period, that's just his MO anyway. He's a better sleeper, period. So anyway, I now wake up in the morning not upset with him. What tips would you share uh, for someone who's who's thinking about uh, going through this themselves, getting started on this sleep divorce? 
Yeah. Well, the first thing is to make sure that you have this space. So like I said, if you're living in a small apartment in a city and you barely have room to, let's say, cook in your kitchen and there's just a small sleeping space, this may or may not work because no matter where you set the other person up, it's still got to be a great sleep environment. So it doesn't just mean separating the two of you and one of you having great sleep, the other one. So you need to, first of all, check your space. But I think after that, talk with your partner. And I think that you need to explain that it's not about your relationship. It's about your health. And really, if you want your relationship to stay active, thriving as you age, well, you got to have your health with you. I think then once you've done that and established where everybody is going to sleep, is to give it a try. You might even have sleepovers in each other's rooms. Sounds kind of odd, but Sometimes on the weekends, if I know that maybe I don't need to log as good night of sleep, or maybe I have time in the afternoon to take like what I call my 13 minute power nap, I might say, Chris, do you feel like coming, you know, sleeping in the room tonight with me? Generally, Carrie, at first he was saying yes, but I think even he realizes he feels badly if I don't get a good night of sleep. So it's easier for him just to say no, but that might be another way to go about this too. Sure. Keep a little flexibility in the plans. Absolutely. Yeah. That yep. makes sense. Well, here's to a better night's sleep and hopefully a healthier life. Karen Asp, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Carrie. It was a pleasure. Essential oils are a big story these days. While the current rage for oils you dab on your skin or breathe in from an infuser may seem new, people have been extracting oils from plants for, well, pretty much as long as there have been people and plants. In fact, you can also find plant oils in your skincare products or as tinctures to mix with water or capsules to swallow whole. Some people even dribble them into vegetable oil. Here's a look at some popular oils and what they can or can't do for you. If it's a perky scent you're after, peppermint is hard to beat. That's why it's so widely used in soaps and cosmetics. You can dab it right on your skin for sore muscles or headaches, or you can take it as a capsule or liquid for stomach ache and IBS. Just be careful, it can cause rashes and heartburn, and keep it away from babies and small children because it can cause life-threatening breathing problems. Is your happy place in the kitchen? Then you probably know that quite a few sources of essential oils are equally at home there. Turmeric, for example, comes from the same family as ginger. There's a compound in it called curcumin that gave us the spice cumin. It's an anti-inflammatory, and research shows it might help with cancer, Alzheimer's, and arthritis. You can put it on your skin or take it by mouth. Then there's cinnamon. This spice cabinet standby comes from the cinnamon tree. It can help ease stomach problems, and researchers are looking into its effects on blood sugar and MS. You can get it in a capsule, drink it in tea, or add it to food. And surprise, it's often found in shampoo and lotion. If you have seasonal allergies, though, you might need to skip it. You could be more likely to have a bad reaction to it. Tea tree oil, on the other hand, is okay to use on your skin. In fact, Aboriginal people in Australia have used it to heal wounds for centuries. Now you'll find it in products that treat things as diverse as athlete's foot, nail fungus, insect bites, and acne. There isn't a lot of research behind it, but you can use it on your skin safely. Just don't drink it. It can cause confusion and loss of muscle coordination. Bitter orange is also skin-friendly. You can use it to treat ringworm, jock itch, and athlete's foot. Some people take it by mouth for heartburn or weight loss, but there's no proof that it works. 
Also, it's a stimulant, which means it can really rev up your system. So be careful with it when you take it by mouth. Now for the bad news. When it comes to pleasant smells, lavender is high on the list. It gets big marks for easing stress and helping you sleep. Not only is it popular as an essential oil, you'll also find it in perfume and soaps. If it works for you, great, but there isn't a lot of research on it yet. Chinese medicine has relied on oil from the leaves of the ginkgo tree for centuries. It's supposed to ease tinnitus, or ringing in your ears, eye problems, and leg pain from narrowed arteries. And while it may be best known in the U.S. as a way to boost brain function in people with dementia, it hasn't been proven to do much of anything. Talk to your doctor before you take it because it can affect the way some drugs, like blood thinners, work. Evening primrose oil is widely used as a dietary supplement. It has a fatty acid called gamma-linolenic acid that's supposed to help with things like eczema, arthritis, and PMS. There isn't a ton of proof that it works, so if you want to give it a shot, you should only take it for a short time. It could give you a headache or upset stomach. St. John's wort gets mixed reviews for treating depression. Don't use it in place of your medication, and let your doctor know if you want to try it. It affects the way some medications work. Some people use flaxseed oil to treat everything from diabetes to high cholesterol, cancer, and hot flashes. But the research doesn't back it up. If you use it, be careful. It can cause diarrhea. If you rub it onto your skin, garlic can help with psoriasis and wound healing. But tablets or capsules don't live up to their promise of controlling high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or curing the common cold. And it might make you more likely to bleed if you take blood thinners. Chamomile is also widely used in shampoo. Chamomile tea gets high marks for helping with anxiety, but the evidence isn't there for using it to stop diarrhea, ease gas, or help you sleep. Want to know more about how to use essential oils safely? Check out the show notes. It's summer. School is over, or almost over, depending on where you are. If you're a kid, that means a vacation from the grind of homework and the school day routine. And if you're a parent of a child with ADHD, it may seem like an ideal time to let your kid take a break from their medication. If you're not familiar with ADHD treatment, here's a quick overview. Many kids take medication of some kind to get symptoms like hyperactivity, lack of focus, and impulsive behavior under control. Now, medication isn't the only treatment. It's important to include other approaches like behavior therapy, skills training, and educational support too. But for many kids, medications are a big help. However, like any medicine, there are drawbacks too, like side effects. So there are a few reasons parents might consider a drug holiday for their children with ADHD. But do they work? And how do you know if it's the right choice for your child? To help us answer these questions, we have Dr. Smitha Bandari, an Atlanta-based psychiatrist who specializes in working with children and teens. Dr. Bandari, welcome to Health Now. Thank you so much. Why is this a thing? What are the main reasons that parents think about giving their kids a break from ADHD medication? I think a lot of parents like the idea of having their kids medication-free over the summer, um, and it also helps them, you know, kind of re-regulate their systems for sleep and for appetite. Um, it's a great time for kids to catch up on some growth as well. Um, so I think parents really, in, you know, enjoy and embrace that idea of taking their kids off medication. It doesn't work for everybody, though, um, and some kids really, you know, do need the medication for their activities over the summer. But it really is an individual decision. Sure. Um, so let's let's dive into that a little bit. Are there real benefits to these drug holidays? 
So again, it depends, you know, it depends on a child. Like, for example, let's say, you know, your kid really, really benefits from the medication. It helps them focus and do well at school. But, you know, they, no matter how hard you try, they just don't eat very well on it. So because lack of like appetite that, is one of the, the side effects of these drugs. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's one of the most common side effects we see in our practice. Um, and so, you know, no matter how hard you try, if you've got one of those kids who just doesn't eat well when they take their medication, you know, summer would be a great time if, um, if you're able to take them off the medication because they can really, you know, graze at home and catch up on calories and that will really help them um, maintain their growth. And so for a child like that, taking a, a medication holiday over the summer, you know, would be, would be really great. Sometimes sleep is another one. You know, some kids really have a hard time settling down at the end of the night and um, and sleeping well when they take the ADHD stimulant. So taking a break over the summer can really um, help re-regulate their sleep and, and give them some good quality sleep over the summer. And I've also read about, you know, symptoms can change as, ch- as children get older. Their ADHD symptoms can change and they um, taking a break from medication could be a way to sort of gauge how the condition is is changing a little bit. Is there any uh, validity to that? Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's actually a great point. Um, and sometimes the summer is a good chance to see, like, what is your baseline? Like, what are you like without any medicine? And parents ask that all the time. You know, my kid's been taking medicine since they were in second grade, and now they're in seventh grade. And, you know, how do we know what they're like without the medicine? And the summer is a great time to do that as well. Um, And you're right, sometimes kids' symptoms do change. For example, in my office, the thing I see change the most is that impulse control and the hyperactivity. Um, Kids tend to be able to outgrow that a little bit as they get older. Um, Not everybody, but, you know, but some kids. Um, And so taking them off the medicine over the summer gives gives you really a good solid, you know, eight weeks to see what they're like without any medication. So that's a a great point. And like you said, it makes sense that summer would be an ideal time to not be on these medicines since kids aren't in school and they're not trying to focus on academics. But are there downsides to not treating ADHD in the summertime? Right. And again, it it really depends on the fit of the environment. So, you know, what are the demands on your child over the summer? And if, if, let's say, one extreme, if you're doing um, a lot of summer tutoring or you're doing, you know, summer reading camp or trying to boost up some, some of your academic skills over the summer, you may want to continue the medication just so you can make the most out of those experiences. Um, for other kids, and, and, you know, we have to remember that ADHD really has two parts. It has the focus, attention, academic part. For some kids, it also has the hyperactive, impulsive part. And that sometimes is the part that, um, you know, we think about behaviors like not um, not keeping your hands to yourself or, you know, having a hard time waiting your turn. And some of those hyperactive, impulsive symptoms um, can make it hard to, to make and keep friends. And so for, for those kids, sometimes it's helpful to take the medicine year-round because the summer gives them a chance to work on their friendships and their relationships. Right. Those things don't suddenly go away just because they're not in school. Correct. Correct. Is this a real choice for every kid? How would you know if your child was ready for this kind of a break? I think it's great to have, you know, a a team-based approach when making this decision. So, you know, talking with your your child's doctor, talking with um, anybody that's going to be providing care for them over the summer. So, 
that could be the, the parent directly. It could be a caregiver like a nanny or a babysitter um, or a camp counselor um, and really getting everybody's input to kind of figure out what's best for each child. So let's say a parent wants to give this a try. What are the kinds of changes or uh, different behavior that they should be prepared for and how can you deal with them? And on the flip side of that also, what do you do if things just really don't go well if you stop giving your child this medication? Sometimes what you do see those, those first week or two that you take them off medication, um, it's not that uncommon to see a lot of tiredness those first weeks. Um, again, the, the medication is a stimulant, so it does provide um, a stimulant effect on the brain. And when you take that away, sometimes your body and your brain need a couple of weeks to sort of readjust to life without the medicine. So sometimes parents will say, gosh, my kid's just sleeping so many more hours than you know they've ever slept before. And it's okay. That should normalize and get better over the first week or two. Um, sometimes they are starving those first two weeks and, and sort of, um, again, it's the same principle that their body needs a couple of weeks to just reset its metabolism, reset its cues for hunger. Um, sometimes those first two weeks, they can be really, really hungry. Um, the other part too, is sometimes those first couple of weeks, you can see almost what seems like an increase in symptoms. Um, we call that like a rebound, um, where you know, if they've had the medicine every day for years, sometimes the first two weeks, it, it, you notice a lot of increased hyperactivity or talking or um, interrupting, intruding, really having a hard time staying focused. Again, the brain just needs a couple of weeks to get used to um, life without the medicine, and you may see that settle down after a couple of weeks as well. And I would imagine that if your child is also uh, on behavior therapy or using other types of therapy or support, then you would need to lean on those a little more heavily during that time as well. Exactly. Yep. And just using other strategies, kind of, you know, reminding yourself that this may just be um, a period of adjustment to coming off the medication. Um, But yeah, using any of those other strategies, you know, would be great. If you try it and you just really can't manage and, and function and the kids are, you know, not having successful days at camp or, or um, you know, just it seems to be causing a lot of trouble, then you can always decide to go back on um, or to change the medicine or change the dose. And again, at that time, you know, as long as you can report to your doctor what's happening, they should be able to help you make those decisions. Are there any special steps you should take to prepare your child for not being on this medicine? Yeah, I think that's a great point, too. You know, kids, no no matter how young they are, I think they really, um, it's important for them to be included in this process. You know, number one, so that they have an understanding of what's going on and say, hey, you might feel different this next couple of weeks, but remember, we're going to change your medicine, and and that might be part of why you feel different. Um, And I also think it's just important for them to feel included in the process just so they can learn to take you know, ownership of um, of their health decisions, and so they can be a, an active participant in that. Um, and the language you choose, you know, it, it can depend on what kind of understanding they have, of course, how old they are and sort of where they are developmentally. And again, your doctor can really help you have that conversation with your child. And like any medication a doctor has prescribed, you shouldn't just stop giving it to your child cold turkey. What are the steps that you should take if you want to try this? Yeah, I think, um, and if we're talking about the ADHD stimulants, like medicines like um, methylphenidate, which is the um, common name for Ritalin, 
or um, dextroamphetamine preparations like Adderall, if we're talking about stimulant medication, um, there really is no um, physiologic withdrawal. So you are able to stop it, you know, um, on the weekends or stop it for a vacation if you wanted to. But absolutely, um, I would talk to your doctor about it because they can really help you see what are the changes to expect for each child, what are the potential benefits, what are the potential downsides, um, and they can really help you make an educated decision about when and how to do it. Something for parents of kids with ADHD to think about over the summertime. Dr. Bandari, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Plenty of foods get a bad rap these days, but we found a few on the list with some good qualities that just might surprise you. First up, pasta. Yes, it is full of dreaded carbs, but it's also low in fat and salt and helps you stay satisfied longer. That means you're less likely to snack or overeat after you have it. But there is a catch, and you already know what it is, don't you? You have to skip that tasty Alfredo sauce. Opt for whole grain pasta with olive oil and a sprinkle of Parmesan. Speaking of carbs, if you scratched potato salad off your picnic standby list for the summer, here's some food for thought. Cold potatoes have something called resistant starch, which works like fiber does to keep you feeling full and keep your gut healthy. Whether they're hot or cold, potatoes also have nutrients like potassium and magnesium. Just use low-fat, low-calorie mayo to make your summer side dish. Another food at the top of the don't list these days is red meat. But if you go for a small portion and trim off all the fat, you actually have a great source of protein, omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin B12, zinc, and, of course, iron. It might even lower your LDL, or bad, cholesterol, too. But you have to go for a fairly lean option. Leave the burgers on the grill and the prime rib at the buffet table. Speaking of tasty dinner options, give dark meat chicken a second chance, too. Yes, it has more saturated fat than white meat, but it also has more minerals like iron, zinc, and selenium, plus vitamins A, B, and K. And it's a great source of taurine, which helps break down fat and hold down inflammation and blood pressure. And while a skinless chicken breast has a place of honor on every healthy menu, don't forget the other white meat. A lean pork tenderloin just may be your secret weapon when it comes to fighting diet boredom. While you're making side dishes, don't be afraid to use frozen veggies. They have the same health benefits as fresh, sometimes even more when they're picked and frozen at their nutritional height. And when snack time rolls around, it's okay to munch on some popcorn. After all, it is a whole grain and loaded with fiber, which will help you feel full longer. Oh, and that also means it can help keep you regular. Popcorn even has vitamin B, manganese, magnesium, and antioxidants. The caveat won't surprise you. Say no to the salt and butter. And then there's your childhood favorite peanut butter. Yes, it has fat, but it's unsaturated, so it isn't as bad for you. It also has potassium. Plus, studies show that people who eat nuts regularly are less likely to get heart disease or type 2 diabetes. To keep things healthy, go all natural if you can, or look for reduced sugar and salt varieties. And maybe spread it on celery sticks instead of making a PBJ. For years, eggs were a no-no for fear they'd send your cholesterol through the roof. But it turns out they can help you feel full all day and give you vitamin D and selenium, along with a ton of B vitamins and amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein. Need a little sweetness in your life? Try honey. You'll get antioxidants and good bacteria for your gut, which can help with digestion and getting nutrients from your food. It can still give you the shakes if you drink too much, but you don't have to worry about coffee raising your odds of heart disease. In fact, it might do the opposite. Just go easy on the cream and sugar. 
Alcohol can also do some good, like protecting you from kidney stones, gallstones, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease. But that's only when you drink moderately. That's one drink a day for women and two for men. And we've saved the really good news for last, chocolate. At least dark chocolate has flavonoids that can lower blood pressure, boost blood flow to your brain, and maybe hold off some types of heart disease. But you have to make sure you get dark chocolate. It has the most flavonoids and the least sugar. So if your menu is looking a little bland lately, don't be afraid to work some of these favorites back in. Time for our tweak of the week. Shave your legs after a pedicure, not before. Sure, you don't want the nail technician to feel stubble, but if you nick your skin with your razor, any bacteria that's hanging out in the salon's footbath could get inside the cut and lead to an infection. If you've already shaved your lower legs, wait at least 24 hours before you head to the nail salon for a pedicure. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you join us next time.